Thank you all. It's a great honor to be here. It's actually my second time lecturing in this hall. I was first here about five years ago in 2013 when I was talking about something else entirely. It's, I, I'm thrilled to be back, and to, I would like to thank Michael Minnelli, who's not here, for in fact convincing me to do this for a second time. Um, tonight, I'll talk about bubbles, manias, and market failures, and particularly about the unintended consequences of regulatory responses to these events. And I think when you begin talking about this subject, it's almost imperative that you start with tulip mania, which is the paradynamic early modern financial crisis. Some of you may recognize this wonderful print from 1637-38 by Peter Nolpe, which shows a fool's cap in which people are playing a game that was played in the inns near the flower markets. It was a kind of auction game, a bit of a spread betting game, in which they bid up the price of tulips. And this print shows the devastation that tulip mania was supposed to have caused to the morals and, in fact, the economic welfare of the Dutch Republic. Now, most of us, when we actually see copies of this print, don't see the copies from 1636-37, but rather recycled copies from the 1720s in a much different context. And we'll talk in a moment about that context. But the important thing is to realize that this was a speculative mania, putatively in tulips, um, when you begin to look at it, you realize that it's actually in these exotic tulips. The Semper Augustus tulip, which is pictured on the side, is an example. These exotic tulips were actually diseased. They had a kind of plant lice that caused them to create these wonderful patterns, which in order to replicate the patterns, you then had to clone the tulips, which is part of tulip biology, which meant that the tulips became more fragile and more diseased in subsequent generations. So cultivating these tulips was quite a risky business. Um, not every tulip you put in the ground came out in six months. And there was indeed in the 1630s a bit of a speculative bubble in these tulips. But the mythology of tulip mania actually combined this speculative bubble in these tulips with a much more conventional garden variety bubble in common tulips that was occurring in these flower markets, largely because many people were trapped in Dutch um, cities and towns because of the plague, the harbors were closed, the Thirty Years' War was going on, and over the, the winter and spring of 1636-37, all of this activity was going on. It came to the attention of the Dutch authorities, and they were quite keen to put a stop to it. But in any case, the details of this tulip mania have been kind of mythologized in such a way that it's become the kind of ideal type of a speculative bubble. Well, why is that important? Because many of these myths essentially exist to the, to the present day. People think about tulips as fetish objects. Every time you get a kind of financial innovation, whether it's derivatives or the blockchain, Bitcoin, someone in The Economist pins an editorial saying, Bitcoin is like tulip mania. There was a speculative bubble in the 1630s. The whole thing is going to end in tears. The government should do something. And this notion of these tulips as fetish objects is something that has kind of come into the conventional wisdom even though what actually happened at the time was quite a bit more complicated than that. The other thing that's interesting, of course, is this notion of these irrational prices that were being paid, the idea of over 10,000 pounds a bulb in 1637 money. That's clearly a lot of money because a middle-class family in London or Amsterdam could survive on 50 to 70 pounds a year in the 1630s. So these are outlandish prices, prices that were purportedly paid and they're quoted as gospel when thinking about this bubble, so that the notion was the prices crashed back to 3 to 5% of the high, and that's the kind of thing that regulators want to discourage, because clearly that's bad for society if people are speculating in this way. Now, 
There was also this myth that the entire society was involved in some way, that the poor were preyed upon, that people were committing suicide in the wake, that people were selling their houses, mortgaging their shares in you know, the, the Dutch East India Company in order to speculate on this. And even by the time you got to the 20th century historical literature, people were saying this was a cause or possibly a symptom of Dutch decline. The end of the Dutch Golden Age was all because of this tulip mania. And as a consequence, really, it's very important that regulators do something to stop this. So you've got this myth that, that has kind of come down to us over the ages that just gets magnified in every um, retelling. Now, I think perhaps the, the version that, again, you're most familiar with is the kind that gets peddled in the New York Times or maybe the Atlantic of a kind of return of the repressed, that society represses the last memory of a financial bubble, and then it returns in another form, say Bitcoin or you know, credit default swaps or whatever, um, dot-com mania or whatever it is that the, the, the cartoonist is trying to satirize at the time. Now, what I'd like to begin by pointing out is that these narratives are, in fact, very historically contingent, that they um, have many sources with a different context, that in the case of that initial print that you saw with the fool's cap, again, the version of that we're familiar with is not actually from the 1630s. It's actually from the 1720s. There was a compendium of cartoons after the South Sea Bubble and the Mississippi Scheme that was printed in Amsterdam that collected all the satirical literature that was satirizing, parroting these various bubbles. And there was even a small bubble in Amsterdam in 1720, but the satirist hadn't gotten to work yet. So instead, what the author of this compendium did is went back to the 1630s and collected all the cartoons he could find that were still extant from the 1630s and published those in order to satirize the bubble in the 1720s in Amsterdam, which is probably the only reason we actually know about tulip mania, because these cartoons about the 1630s were so obscure if they hadn't been discovered and given a second life, recycled, the episode probably would have disappeared from our memory at all. And of course, many of you, if you knew about tulip mania before the recent financial crisis, probably had occasion to read at university Charles Mackay's famous book, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And of course, he was a Whig journalist from the 19th century who really disliked superstition. He disliked witchcraft. He disliked what he regarded as the bar barbarity of the Middle Ages. And he wanted to use tulip mania as yet another example of the absurd things people believed in the past and the absurd things they did. So you know, this, to him, was an example of what the Enlightenment had swept away. And that is actually how tulip mania entered the consciousness of 19th century audiences. And his account actually relied heavily on Johann Becken's account of the history of inventions, discoveries, and origins, where the narrative was slightly different. It was about those kind of bad forms of innovation that contempt people that are socially deleterious. And we need to understand their history so that new innovations, new inventions, don't have that you know, horrible side effect. But where did all this come from beyond these prints that they saw in the 1720s in The Great Mirror of Folly? The sources for the actual Tulip Mania episode are largely these contemporary Dutch dialogues, which the Dutch Calvinist authorities had commissioned in order to um, lampoon what they regarded as the bad behavior of Anabaptist flower growers. So these exotic tulips were actually made um, or principally grown by Anabaptists, who were a religious minority, were not very well liked by the Dutch Calvinists, despite the fact that there was religious toleration in Amsterdam. So they commissioned these dialogues to suggest 
that actually these, these evil flower growers had, had kind of encouraged the social disease of speculating on tulips and all those prices that people find and all these you know, vignettes of suicides and um, terrible you know, uh, social contagion actually come out of these dialogues. But these dialogues were actually just religious polemics. They are not necessarily a particularly good reflection on what was actually going on in the 1630s. But all of this was picked up again by, um, by Keynes, really, because he was interested in this in terms of his notions about how um, animal spirits work and what can eventually be done to you know, smooth aggregate demand and how you think about this. And that was actually kind of serendipitous because there was a Dutch historian, um, Post-Thomas, and I'm sorry that's actually misspelled, there shouldn't be the O there, but Post-Thomas was actually investigating the origins of the Dutch tulip mania in um, the late 1920s, and he happened to publish his article on this a few months before the financial crash of the 1929. So the fact that he published this episode about tulip mania a few months before the crash in 1929 meant everybody who experienced the stock market crash in 1929 sort of found tulip mania as you know, a good, ready analogy, a good explanation of what had happened. So you've got these various different sources of this myth, and what's at stake here? Is it more than just kind of schadenfreude of laughing at the misfortune and folly of others? Or is there actually something about this that, that's important for our understanding of how um, of these crises and how we manage them? Now, again, you know, these are changing narratives of financial crises. And I think the way in which they change are quite important because it's always about regulation. In the earliest incarnations, to the extent that you can find you know, references to these in the 17th century, including those two religious dialogues I pointed out, this is about morality tales. This is about you know, the authorities, religious authorities, needing to impose religious uniformity, needing to discourage greed, needing to discourage idolatry, needing to say that, that actually this horrible gambling game is against the sensibilities of Dutch Calvinists. And their regulatory response was to punish it as gambling with the understanding that this was sending a message about what was acceptable in terms of the religious values of the day. Now, when you fast forward to the 19th century, this is about rationality and irrationality in the Enlightenment sense. And of course, in you know, the 1820s, you had the crash of 1825. And in the 1840s, you had these railway manias. And it's very convenient to suggest that financial panics are on par with superstitions of unenlightened eras, equivalent to witchcraft, alchemy, mesmerism. And that has a different context, because again, it's convenient to the people who want to regulate these to think of them that way. Now today, we often talk about bubbles as irrational in a kind of psychological sense, whether it's the sort of Freudian psychological sense of the cartoon that I showed you, um, which is you know, echoed at UCL by one of my colleagues, David Tuckett, who talks about emotional finance, or whether it's the more conventional behavioral finance explanations of you know, prospect theory, hyperbolic discounting, um, endowment effects, all of these uh, cognitive biases that make up behavioral finance. However you try to encapsulate it, this is about this notion of um, irrationality in a psychological sense, and we have modern theories for explaining it, which give us different regulatory recommendations, um, whether it's having a kind of um, net nanny who's supposed to stop, or a, a market nanny who's supposed to stop speculation if it occurs, or whether it's about finding some kind of nudge that encourages traders to behave more responsibly, these modern psychological theories underpin the regulatory response. 
And what we find then is that you know, things like these cartoons are actually encapsulating a kind of modern um, emplotment of these financial crises that fits very well with the dominant theories of how regulators should respond to them, particularly this notion of irrational you know, excess euphoria, the, the kind of Alan Greenspan response. Again, it's very convenient for the, 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 the regulators to be able to point to these crises and to kind of hive them off and explain them that way. Now, um, what I'm going to suggest is that this is not actually a particularly helpful way of thinking about it, that the reality behind financial crises is that we narrate them because we're trying to make sense of market failure, that when markets are operating normally, success explains itself. There's no reason to try to narrate that. But once you have a market snap, whether it's a panic or a mania or just a conventional market failure, you need to find a way of narrating that. And all of these myth mythological stories are essentially nonsense, but it's actually the history of that nonsense that we need to understand. We need to understand why it became so important to people in the 17th century to think about it one way, the 18th century and the 19th century to think about it another way, and why the 20th century is obsessed with thinking about it in yet a different way. And when you do that, you begin to see how financial crises and the regulatory responses that follow them end up sowing the seeds effectively for the next crisis. Now, um, I also want to pause for a moment and reflect on what we mean by unintended consequences, because that's something that's thrown around quite often. It's kind of convenient trope of the Times or the Economist, you know, the sort of, or even the Financial Times, the sort of center-right and center-left press likes to talk about the unintended consequences of policies. Policymakers are not as omniscient as they think they are, and as a consequence, they can't anticipate what's going to go wrong when they take a particular course of action. Well, that obviously comes um, in, in the first instance from Edmund Burke, who is um, today often suggested to be the father of conservatism, although he would have very much rejected that because there are few people he despised in, in the 18th century more than Tories. He was an old Whig. Um, he believed in the American Revolution. He didn't like the French Revolution, but he didn't like Tories either. So he would absolutely refuse the label of the father of modern conservatism. But he did certainly believe two things, um, the first of which actually is also echoed in Adam Smith, who essentially just cribs that line and, 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 and gives it a different gloss. And that is that no man who is not inflamed by vainglory into enthusiasm can flatter himself that his single, unsupported, desultory, unsystematic endeavors are overpowered to defeat the subtle designs and united cabals of ambitious citizens. When bad men combine, the good must associate, else they will fall one by one into an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. And what he recognizes was what Smith recognizes, which is that when capitalists combine to restrain trade, they're very successful in doing so, and that when regulators try to think about responses to financial bubbles, they're presented with lobbying on the part of market participants and financial capitalists who are trying to get it to, to go one direction or the other. So Edmund Burke understood that. He was in no sense naive about the extent to which lobbying of one description or another is something that occurs and that what we today call regulatory capture is a feature of this and an important phenomenon to consider. But Burke also understood that that which is in the first instance is prejudicial may be excellent in its remoter operation and its excellence may arise from even the ill effects it produces in the beginning. The reverse also happens and very plausible schemes with very pleasing commencements have often shameful and lamentable conclusions. And indeed, many of the, the well-meaning responses to regulators to financial bubbles have had shameful and lamentable conclusions. 
So I think pausing to reflect on Burke is worth doing because he was quite foresighted in recognizing both of these features. And these features are part of our modern theories of regulation, which fall into essentially two categories. There is the well-known public interest hypothesis, which is kind of the ideal normal type of regulation, what you want regulation to do. You want regulation to ensure that prices are affordable to consumers and that the risk associated with financial assets is reasonably priced and transparent. You want regulation to improve and sustain service levels, um, particularly in financial markets, but also elsewhere. And you want regulation to address market failures and externalities, especially the social impacts of um, whatever it is you're trying to regulate. And that's your kind of ideal normal type. That's what you want regulation to do. But there's also the private interest hypothesis that says, in reality, regulation is a response to lobbying by producers and market participants, and that regulatory capture is commonplace. And I think probably the best way to summarize this is another cartoon where, and I'm by no means actually targeting Goldman Sachs here, this is just the cartoon that has um, them identified because there are many bulge bracket banks that all behave this way. Um, you might just argue that Goldman Sachs is somewhat more successful than the others, but it's not different in character. But here you've got a journalist who's saying, you didn't learn the lessons of the crash, did you? You're right back to the same high-risk game. And he's saying, that's not true. What's changed? Well, fewer competitors. And indeed, the fallout of the crash, but also the regulatory response, raised the barriers of entry, forced out competitors, and has actually created an environment that perhaps is at least as risky as the one that, that we faced um, at the beginning of the financial, last financial cry, crash. But that idea of regulatory capture and the unintended consequences of financial crises is something that's actually been baked into it for as long as we've been aware of these financial crises in markets. And in order to illustrate that point, I want to look specifically at the South Sea bubble, which is the kind of ground zero moment in the UK for thinking about crises in financial markets. And here, of course, is a very famous print of the South Sea bubble. Most of you probably know it in rough outline. You've heard of the idea that there's the South Sea company, that its stock runs up in value and it crashes. Lots of people lose money. Everybody from Locke to the Duke of Newcastle to others, the Duke of Portland, were involved in this, and that it was something that was very traumatic um, in early 18th century Britain, but also in France and elsewhere. So you probably have heard that rough outline. But to think about it a little bit more precisely, I think what we need to recognize is that this was a crisis that always involved the government, that the South Sea Company was a peristatal. It was not a fully private firm in, in, in the sense that we think of them today. And in 1720, the British government debt stood at 50 million pounds. And again, to put that in context, the average middle-class family in 18th century London could live on 50 to 70 pounds a year in London. So that's an awful lot of money. Debt service is eating up the revenue from the excise. Um, so the government is cash-strapped in, in, in the late 17-teens and 1720s. You also have the War of Spanish Succession, which was very costly. Um, and you have a situation where you've got a very large government debt, and some of it is held by three companies, all of which are familiar to you, who are essentially service, you know, who are effectively holding that debt on behalf of the government. Um, the Bank of England actually has a fairly small share, as does the East India Company. The South Sea Company, by 1720, had 11.7 um, million um, pounds of government debt. And at the same time, there were these redeemable bonds in private hands that, that were about 16.5 million, 
and another 15 million in unredeemable annuities. So that's how the government debt is proportioned. And again, this is a really serious crisis for the government of Britain, just as the regent had a similar problem in, in France um, in 1720. So this is about state finance as much as it is about private speculation. And to illustrate this, what you could see is in the late 1710s, 17-teens, by 1715, British government debt service is eating up 60% of um, the revenue. So this is a crisis for the government and it has to decide what to do. And you've got this South Sea Company, which is established in 1711 by some Tories who want to take advantage of, first of all, the election of 1710, which puts them in power, and secondly, the fact that it's fairly clear that the worst Spanish succession will end and that you'll have a commercial treaty of Utrecht, which gives an asianto, which is the right to conduct slaving in the South Seas, um, and that the Spanish end up granting that to the British. So they're going to take advantage of this commercial treaty, but by 1720, its main revenue was in its finance operations on behalf of the government. And in March of 1720, it won the right to acquire that last 30 million pounds in government debt and to exchange that for shares in the company. So this is actually a government debt deal, a debt for equity swap. And that debt for equity swap, along with these subscription shares, which allowed people to buy shares in the South Sea Company on installment, were financial innovations. So what you could do is, just as you might have done in the 70s or 80s to buy white goods, you could buy on installment and pay it off over time. You could buy South Sea Company shares on installment in the 1720s, and that was part of the enticement of getting, um, getting so-called retail customers into, you know, in, into the game. The other thing that's quite important in this context is that in 1720-21, there's this massive mega bubble in um, equities in uh, London, Paris, and Amsterdam. Everybody becomes interested in South American trade and wants a piece of the action. So that's what makes the South Sea bubble so in, uh, South Sea Company so enticing to investors in London. The Mississippi Company is likewise enticing in France and in Amsterdam companies that are getting into the game with South American trade are also doing very well. Now in Britain, that actually also includes marine insurance companies that have invested in, you know, who, who have, are writing a lot of marine insurance and as a consequence have corporate treasuries that are investing as well in um, share companies that are trying to get in on the trade. And what happened in 1720-21 that pushed the price up very quickly is that the major assurance companies, um, the London and the Royal Exchange, their corporate treasuries were investing in South Sea Company stock. So that was combining to run up the price along with these debt for equity swaps and along with the um, installment shares where you know, retail customers could buy a share over a period of time on installment. Now, um, this drove up the shares quite considerably. And um, as you can see from this particular chart, you know, you've got a period of essentially unrelenting upward um, march of share prices, rather like perhaps um, London property in the last five or six years. But the point is that the directors become very worried that the other firms that are involved in South American trade, some of which are quite dodgy, like salvage companies that are going to raise Spanish shipwrecks or new colonies or other mad schemes, or distracting investors and making them less interested in South Sea Company shares. So what they do is they get together and they lobby Parliament to introduce the Bubble Act. The Bubble Act is going to ban all of these bubble companies 
other than the South Sea Company and these two um, London insurance companies, you know, marine insurance companies that are so important to, um, to, to the South Sea bubble. So um, what that ends up doing is signaling to the market that something's badly wrong. You know, if Parliament needs to step in and ban all the alternative types of investment, that signals that something is, is, is a bit fishy here. And of course, the bubble begins to unwind and collapses. But the Bubble Act is passed anyway. It incorporates the Royal Exchange and the London Insurance Company, which you actually know for most of the rest of the 18th century in terms of writing fire insurance, not uh, marine insurance, which is what the other companies and then Lloyd's Market actually do. Um, something similar, of course, has actually happened in the Netherlands in this period as well. But all new royal joint stock companies have to have a, all new joint stock companies have to have a royal charter, which then also creates opportunities for rent-seeking and government lobbying. And these subscription shares, which are so popular, are actually banned until the 1840s. But contrary to popular belief, the South Sea Company did not bank the South Sea Bubble did not bankrupt the company, which continued merrily along until the 1850s, when it was wrapped up along with the East India Company after the Sepoy Rebellion. So again, you know, you have this bubble, and towards the end of the bubble, shares are essentially back down to where they were at the beginning of the bubble. But you have a regulatory intervention, the Bubble Act which essentially casts a long shadow for about 100 years over British financial markets. And what does it end up doing? Uh, well, first of all, here's just a bit of, of a share from the seven, late 1720s to suggest that actually the South Sea Company is going strong in this period. People have to invest in something, and this is one of the few um, joint stock companies with royal charters. But there is a long shadow that's cast over British financial markets. And we begin to see this first with the canal mania of 1790 to 1815. And what happens here is that because you have this long period where only a handful of companies have royal charters and as a consequence are able to trade in Exchange Alley and are essentially the blue chip stocks of the 18th century, when you start having um, a need to raise finance for these canals, you end up having canal companies that are very closely held in you know, regional areas and you have competition to build canals often right next to each other and as a consequence, the bubbles that you get from those canal, from canal mania um, tend to be very localized and um, reflect the idea that, that actually these markets are not deep enough to raise the kind of finance necessary. So what then happens is that these canal companies start flooding parliament with these private members bills trying to get themselves royal charters. There's an enormous amount of corruption and parliament actually responds um, in 1825 by abolishing the, um, the, the, the Bubble Act. And what that ends up doing is creating the steamship mania. Um, and the steamship mania is actually the biggest stock market mania in um, British financial history and probably the one that you've heard the least about. Um, the steamship mania is taking advantage of the fact that canal mania, despite the, the large amount of money that changes hands, has actually resulted in building inland canals in Britain. And there also, of course, is the coastal um, business as well, and these steamships um, lead to an enormous financial bubble in 1824-25 in anticipation of the repeal of the Bubble Act and after it, um, which is a kind of a pent-up demand for joint stock company shares and an enthusiasm about the potential of steamships. 624 companies try to raise 372 million <coughs> through the issuance of 6 million shares. If you do a simple MPV calculation, that's 40 trillion pounds in today's money. So this is an absolutely enormous financial bubble. And I would imagine most of you have never heard of it. Okay. 
This also occurs in the 1820s during another um, kind of problem in financial markets, which is around the, the sovereign bond um, boom, where following Rothschilds and Barings, a lot of London banks are writing, uh, you know, are, are handling sovereign bond issues for newly liberated Latin American countries, and you get that kind of boom and crash where you have some um, sovereign bonds that actually correspond to countries that don't even exist. Perhaps you've heard of that. But at the same time, you have the steamship mania. And of the 70 steamship mania companies that are actually um, promoted um, after, you know, who actually get enough money to begin operation, only three of them are existent, in existence in 1827. So you get massive fallout um, in the sense that 624 companies become 70, become three, Yet, in that same period from 1824 to 1827, you get the birth of modern steamships because the number of steamships doubles and then um, doubles again, and the tonnage increases dramatically. So the interesting thing about this is despite the fact that the steamship mania is the biggest bubble and the one you haven't heard of, it also results in a lot of steamship lines being established. They go bankrupt. They're bought by other steamship companies. So the actual social effects of this are perhaps less toxic than some of the other bubbles you've heard about. But this is a direct response to the repeal of the Bubble Act and ends up then setting the stage for the railway manias and subsequent financial cra um, crashes as well. Now, um, one thing I could do is to take you through that argument as it applies to railway manias, perhaps as it applies to sovereign bonds in the latter part of the 19th century, to take you through that argument as it applies to automobiles and you know, um, airplanes and other things, and, and even the, the 1929 crash. Um, but what I want to do instead is to simply point out that these financial crises, which regulators respond to in a particular way, are also tied to the real economy and are tied to um, what we call in economic history, of waves, which are waves of innovation um, focused around general purpose technologies that are, in fact, infrastructure in their origins. So you have, through five industrial revolutions, six of these waves that begin with steam engines and textiles and that steamship mania I described. You then get you know, railway manias, but at the same time, you get the advent of railway and steam. You get you know, electrochemicals engineering. You get automobiles and petrochemicals. Information technology with the dot-com manias of the, you know, the 1990s and early 2000s. And the question is, looking ahead, what is going to be the next big financial crisis? And I have an argument here that I want to make to you um, about something specific that I think is actually going to be the focus of this and why the regulatory response is so important and why the unintended consequences are perhaps so dangerous. So that's what I'm going to say. Um, how will next time be different? How will it conform to this pattern on the other hand, but how will it differ from this pattern? And why should we be so concerned about that? And um, to begin with that, I want to draw your attention to the global warming, um, the, the IPCC report on holding global warming to 1.5 C, um, which I think most of you probably are aware of. It's been published recently. It gives you the targets for how far you have to decarbonize energy, transport, um, and the food supply. It also talks about the effects of not decarbonizing quickly enough, how you try to maintain 1.5C, 2C, 3C, 4C, those different scenarios. But embedded in that report is also the idea that if this cannot be achieved by decarbonizing infrastructure and changing behavior with respect to um, the food supply, that we're going to have to have some kind of negative emissions technologies and perhaps geoengineering 
that will in some way serve to either sequester carbon or minimize global warming through interfering with, um, the, the, you know, with the effects of the sun. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that these technologies are in themselves desirable or not. That's for you to decide. But what I'm going to suggest is that that actually will be the focus of the next mega bubble because embedded within the IPCC documents is this notion that there will be some kind of carbon dioxide removal necessary to um, achieve the temperature targets that have been set. And whether that takes the form of solar radiation management, trying to put up space mirrors, you know, seeding clouds, or whether it takes the form of some kind of direct air capture, it's already baked into these international agreements. So it simply becomes a question of how these are deployed and by whom, and how state actors approach that problem. And here I also want to pause a second and reflect on the idea that too often we think about this as, a, as an interaction between the state and the market. And we're conditioned to do so because of the Cold War. Because you know, in the Cold War, the idea is that you've got you know, the Marxists who believe it's all about the state, and the state controls the market, and you've got a planned economy. And this is you know, something that's a top-down approach. Whereas the notion is in Western societies, it's all about the market. The market is you know, about market efficiency, allocative efficiency. You know, market capitalism is better than a state-planned economy, and that it's a bottom-up approach. But I think what's actually true is that it's not a two-player game between the state and the market. It's actually a three-player game where you've got financial capital that's orthogonal both to the interests of the state and the interests of the market. And this idea is actually something that I owe to Bill Janeway, who um, was a vice chairman of Warburg Pincus and um, somebody who made Warburg Pincus a lot of money in the 1990s in um, BEA systems and in the, uh, the, the software Veritas that underlines PayPal. But the point is that his observation, and he took this, he actually significantly advanced it from Brodel, but he was reading Brodel as Mediterranean when he arrived at the idea, is that actually this is not a two-player game, this is a three-player game. And you've got financial capitalists who fund innovation, you have you know, equities markets and you have the state, and that actually what you have are three players who are trying to, to um, achieve you know, the, their own agenda here, and that capitalists and the market are not the same thing, that their interests are just as orthogonal to each other as they are to the state. I think this is helpful insight in terms of understanding how the next bubble might unfold. Now, what's going on here? Um, first of all, because of the scale of climate change, which is a global phenomenon, you have, um, on the one hand, the actual technology, um, the carbon dioxide removal technology, both the, um, the, the, the type of technology that's going to sequester carbon permanently and that that's going to sequester it over a longer or shorter time horizon. But you also have um, a be the beginnings of a kind of market design of what this might look like because the World Bank has already rolled out a pilot auction facility um, and tradable put options to allow developing countries to sell the carbon capture potential of reforestation um, in reducing global warming as a way of raising money to do these forest projects. So many developing countries, particularly in Africa and South America, have problems with deforestation. They're trying to do wholesale reforestation 
wholesale reforestation has the effect of taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere because of the effects of forests. How do they finance these reforestation projects? One thing they can do is sell put options um, for the carbon dioxide removal potential of these projects and raise finance in order to, um, you know, to, to get these projects off the ground. This is a potential market design for carbon dioxide removal writ very large if you're going to, to do it in line with the way the IPCC imagines it might happen. But at the same time, you have players like sovereign wealth funds, you have venture capitalists, you have the inventors of these technologies themselves, some of which are unproven, some of which are still in blueprint stage. And you have states that are going to start procuring this technology very quickly. If you don't believe me, there's a lot of activity on the part of the Chinese trying to get direct air capture off the ground. Um, you have uh, various other projects that have seen venture finance in you know, the US and Europe um, for iron, uh, for ocean fertilization and other things to try to get natural carbon sinks. So there's a lot of activity in this space amongst inventors and many different ways of trying to finance it. And again, what am I talking about here? What I'm talking about here is climate engineering that's going to kind of counteract global warming and it's a whole different range of technologies. And that's actually very important because it's the fact that it's a heterogeneous set of technologies that, that makes this such an interesting problem. On the one hand, you have this solar radiation management, the idea of, of putting aerosols in, in the stratosphere that are going to try to you know, um, affect global warming by reducing the amount of direct sunlight. You have iron fertilization of the sea, which is supposed to increase its, its carbon potential. Um, you have space mirrors, you have cloud seeding, you have greening of deserts, you have genetically engineered crops that are supposed to absorb more carbon. You have all of these different ideas, um, things that, that, that you might find a bit scary. For instance, um, there's some sense that uh, massive volcanic uh, eruptions in the past have effectively been a form of solar radiation management because they throw off so much ash that it cools the globe for you know, even centuries. Um, and these things are actually in design, you know, I mean, are currently being designed, and people are currently trying to experiment with them, and they're currently trying to estimate the effects of, of the termination shock of one of these systems going on stream, and then for whatever reason coming offline within a, you know, abruptly rather than in a phased way. So all of this activity is going on, and it's something that's going to be with us for the next 50 years if we're going to try to meet these temperature targets. So again, you know, what are these different, um, different schemes? They fall roughly into two categories. They fall into the category of the solar radiation management, which is trying to stop global warming, but doesn't really have that much potential for capturing carbon. And then you also have the carbon dioxide removal, which is not trying to directly influence car um, global warming, but is trying to take the carbon out of the atmosphere in order to reduce its future global warming potential. So you've got both of those things going on. Now, why is this going to end up causing a financial bubble? Well, first of all, you've got these technological challenges potentially around these termination shocks. You know, what happens if you actually put up space mirrors, you cool the globe, and then suddenly you shoot the space mirrors down, and you have a, you know, a very quick shock to the system? Or what happens if you actually have a you know, forest that absorbs a lot of carbon, and then it catches some disease, and all the trees die, and that carbon is released very quickly? So the termination shocks associated with this are quite serious. Um, there's something called an SRM bridge, which will potentially solve this, but it's still something that's theoretical. 
Um, and the question is then who will finance and who will deploy these technologies and how do you manage that without causing both physical and financial risk to everyone, not just you know, residents of a particular national economy. And the other thing is, is that if the way in which this is conceived is that individuals are supposed to change their behavior, which means maybe eating less meat, traveling by plane less often, using less carbon-intensive forms of transport, less carbon-intensive forms of energy, the idea is they can either change their behavior or they can buy some kind of offset to offset their carbon footprint. So you know, this is already something that exists. You can buy a carbon offset if you fly. It tells you how much carbon that the flight produces. It allows you to buy that offset. Um, you can trade these things if you're firms. You know, you've got um, VC, voluntary carbon offsets. You've had these markets now for about 10 to 15 years, both in Europe and the United States. And the idea is that if individuals are meant to buy these to offset their carbon footprints until we manage to decarbonize energy transport and the food supply, then how should these products be structured? Should they simply be able to buy a carbon dioxide you know, future, removal future where they're saying, okay, I'm producing this much carbon now, but I'm betting that in 20 years there's gonna be some technology that's gonna take that carbon out, then um, how should we regulate those products? Because that's really enticing to people, right? There's a kind of moral hazard there. If you're convinced that in 20 years there's gonna be some nifty direct air capture technology that pulls carbon out of the atmosphere, and you still wanna fly you know, to Bali on a holiday, then you can just go online, potentially, if, if these markets are designed that way, and buy your, your you know, carbon dioxide future that offsets your carbon now um, by, by betting on some technology in the future, that's really attractive to people. And there are firms that are already imagining that they can offer essentially that. And they're already thinking about how they can market you know, these futures that allow you to, to, to behave in a high carbon way now with a promise of, of technologically offsetting it later. So the question is, should we allow these things? And if we do allow these things, how should we design them? Should they be futures? Should they be more like the World Bank's tradable put options, but perhaps more safely designed? Should they be managed by the blockchain? If they are managed by the blockchain, what version of the blockchain? Because there's some versions of the blockchain that cause a huge carbon footprint themselves because of the way in which Bitcoin is mined. So all of these things are actually spinning around now. And, and states, venture capitalists, and the inventors of these technologies are thinking about how, um, how they're going to work. So part of it is, is that actually, um, there is this potential for an SRM bridge. There's an interaction between these technologies because you can have a situation where um, you might decide that you need space mirrors for a while in order to reduce global warming, but then you want the carbon dioxide removal technology to kick in 20 or 30 years later to actually reduce the carbon. So these things work together, and you might even structure contracts that somehow um, hand off between an SRM solution now and a you know, CDR solution later. And this is just a professor, John Shepard, at Southampton, who's got a nice napkin diagram of how this bridge might work. But the point is that the people who are designing these technologies are already thinking about that, that they might structure these hybrid pro pro products that take advantage of one technology now and one technology later. So if all of this is going on, you do need to think about it. And you need to think about it in terms of the markets, um, and the, you know, the, the market in the top left-hand corner, you need to think about it in terms of the state um, and how something, how either nation states or how some kind of form of global governance might organize these markets. You need to think about 
the inventors of this technology, and you also need to think about financial capital in all of its forms, whether it's sovereign wealth funds or more traditional sources of institutional capital, how these are going to work together. Now, actually, at UCL, we have started a research program to do this. We've published um, studies of potential market designs in environmental resource, research letters, which is a common outlet for this kind of thing. We've also published articles on the moral hazard component in the Environmental Law Review, and we've published articles on, on the blockchain or an, an article on the blockchain as a potential way of designing these markets in frontiers and engineering management. We're not the only ones. There are people who are looking at this. But what I would suggest to you is that this is the next big bubble because it is already baked into the international agreements for fighting climate change. And it is baked into the IPCC's framework for this because they're saying that it's impossible to meet the 1.5C or even 2C targets with behavioral change alone because the scale of the low carbon transition is so great as to require that. So what does that mean? Um, what that means is that we need to think through these regulatory issues because unlike these previous financial bubbles, this is unlikely to be something that's as simple as a share bubble. It's possible there will be share bubbles. It's possible that there will be all sorts of companies that are trying to raise conventional equity finance to start firms that produce direct air capture technology. But that's going to be a small part of this because so many of these solutions, whether it's reforesting an area or you know, finding a lot of pumice and chucking it in the ocean or trying to alter the nature of the ocean as a carbon sink, are not actually conventional companies that are producing a product that you can invest in. These are schemes that people are doing to try to alter the carbon um, balance of, 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 of these you know, of things that are actually natural geographical features. What's going to be the, the focus of speculation is the ability to write these derivative contracts that say that you've got a particular type of carbon dioxide removal technology that's going to remove X tons of you know, carbon from the atmosphere at some future date. And someone who is required to offset the carbon that they're producing now is going to buy that. That's the kind of thing that is going to lead to this financial bubble, in my opinion. And here, um, this is, again, based on technological innovation, because people are betting that future technological innovation is going to solve a problem that they're contributing to today with their own behavior. But the safety issues of this go way beyond investors just losing money by investing in a share that ends up being worth nothing or being worth at the end of the bubble approximately what people paid for it at the beginning of the bubble as we saw with the South Sea Company. This is something that could potentially affect society as a whole. And you know, the, because of the scale of the externalities associated with you know, allowing people to go ahead and you know, continue to emit carbon with the hopes of being able to offset it down the line by technology that doesn't presently exist. So I think that the, you know, the potential for this being catastrophic is something we need to think about now. And the problem is that the regulations for the last financial bubble, which are designed to regulate bank leverage, are not actually fit for purpose for regulating what's going to come next. Because this is not going to be about bank finance. This is going to be about individual households trying to you know, buy these products in order to offset their own behaviors, other firms doing so as well. This bubble is not going to be about the financial economy. It's going to be about the real economy and trying to deal with climate change. And 
I think that that's something that you know, we need to begin to, to think about again, that we've become so obsessed with financialization that I think what we've missed here is the next financial bubble is going to be about something else entirely. So that's where I want to leave it. Um, it was suggested to me I leave about 10 minutes for questions, so I've done so. I'm not sure that all of you are convinced, but I hope I've given you some food for thought because I'm not sure that, that most people would tell you that that's going to be the next big bubble, but that is something that I've firmly concluded in the last few years. Thank you.